Hello, friends. Welcome to the second episode of Radio Free Cannabis. Today's episode is going to be on the ways that cannabis may be able to prevent and treat COVID. Uh, and uh, the theme for the show reflects an evolution in my own thinking. When COVID first hit, uh, I was mainly concerned with making sure that cannabis was going to be declared to be an essential product so that we'd be able to continue serving our patients and our clients here in California and my own business, Harborside. Um, uh, and then shortly after that, really thinking about how we can most safely uh, do that, uh, fulfill that mandate as an essential business and make sure that our staff and our clients are as safe as they possibly can be when doing cannabis transactions. So that was, was really where my focus was in, in, in the first week or two. Uh, but it wasn't long before I started seeing posts about CBD uh, and you know, posts talking about how CBD could supposedly prevent COVID. Uh, or treat COVID. And when I first saw the posts, uh, you know, being very familiar with uh, how promotional the, the CBD branch of the cannabis industry has become and how many claims uh, have been attached to CBD without a, a whole lot of scientific backing for them, I was initially skeptical. Uh, and, uh, and, and even in my own mind, I was a little bit skeptical. But there was this little voice uh, in the back of my head that said, you know, Steve, knowing what we know about cannabis, it probably is useful for COVID. But I, I pretty much ignored that voice uh, for, for another week or so. Um, and we can get into the reasons maybe why, why I ignored it until I saw the University of Alberta study come out. And this is a study that came out several weeks ago that identified particular strains of cannabis uh, that seemed to show indications they might be effective for COVID. And when that came out, I started feeling, um, I started feeling a little bit chagrined that I, that I hadn't been talking more about cannabis and COVID because I remembered back to the AIDS crisis, which was really the crucible for modern medical cannabis. And this is the late 1980s in, in San Francisco and Washington, D.C. and other major cities, New York. And uh, advocates like Dennis Perrone, um, uh, Jack Herrer, myself, uh, started uh, sharing cannabis with our friends who had AIDS, not because they were medical patients, but because they were our friends. And, and what we noticed was that the people who consumed cannabis seem to have a higher quality of life and a longer longevity than people who weren't using cannabis, people who had AIDS that, that weren't using cannabis. So that really um, uh, set me to uh, thinking and uh, I started asking some questions. I started asking my friends and my associates whether they knew anybody who uh, had been a regular consumer of cannabis who had experienced COVID and if so, what those symptoms were like. And what I got back was very few people in, that I could identify who were regular cannabis consumers reported having COVID. And in the cases where they did report it, and there were some, they, see, they reported minor cases that didn't require hospitalization. 
Well, that in turn set me off uh, trying to explore some research, see if there was some science here that would back up this uh, early anecdotal indication that would back up some of the other information that I'd seen. And, and I found a, a number of studies, which I myself am not really well qualified enough to, to dig down on them and make judgments about them. But, but I thought that they were, they were really important to explore and share. And, uh, and they convinced me that, uh, that it is time for a conversation. So um, I think the first thing I'd like to talk about with our guests, and let me just mention um, uh, that all of our guests, uh, uh, Dr. Dro Joe Rosado, uh, Dr. Rachel Knox, and Dr. Sandra Carrillo are, um, you know, when I, I, I've met thousands of, of cannabis doctors now, I've traveled all over the world. And there's a few of them who are not only just really exceptional medical professionals who are on the front lines of cannabis medicine, but also have a unique ability to be able to express their knowledge in ways that are, that are accessible and understandable. And, and that's what you'll find from each of our guests today. They are um, the foremost uh, cannabis doctors in the world. You can find their in-depth biographies and links to what they have going on on the description of this of this podcast, and I think I'd like to start with with you, Doctor Knox, and and just uh, sort of we could speak to this question that I was grappling with: Is it okay to have this conversation? It, can we talk about cannabis and COVID? Are there upsides and downsides to that conversation? Yeah. Yes, we can. We should. Um, Absolutely. And, Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. A resounding yes. Um, you know, I, as an endocannabinologist, I never, I never really talk about cannabis in isolation or our phytocannabinoids in isolation. You know, we have to understand that in cannabis, we have this treasure trove of phytochemicals that are pharmacologically active. But not only that, we have to talk about our lifestyles and how, how we think, how we feel, what we eat, um, what relationships we're cultivating impact our, you know, our, our, our immunology um, at the same time. So to zoom back in on cannabis, though, yeah, absolutely, we should be talking about it. Right now, we are seeing research emerge studying how cannabinoids, right, high CBD strains, for example, might be able to use, you know, expressly in the acute setting. Do we know enough about how cannabinoid CBD downregulate receptors that that angiotensin, um, you know, uh, um, converting enzyme, the ACE2 receptor that seems to be helping the coronavirus, that SARS-CoV-2, grab a foothold and replicate? Will the downregulation of that receptor decrease infectability, perhaps, um, you know, we don't know quite yet uh, to what degree, at what doses that might be reasonable or rational, or let's take it a step further. The second phase of COVID-19, right, that severe phase that is representative of the cytokine storm, that cytokine can we downregulate that hyperinflammatory reaction with our phytocannabinoids. We know how anti-inflammatory they are. The, the answer is probably yes, but again, at what doses? And does it make sense right now with what we know um, to usher that quickly into prime time when we still have a lot of questions left to answer? Now, one thing that you said that I thought was really remarkable and that we should hone in on is the use of cannabis preventatively. Um, and that's where I think cannabis is ready for prime time. 
cannabis and the phytocannabinoids there within are like adaptogens. They're helping boost our immune system. They're helping to fortify our bodies so that when we do come across a pathogen, like a viral pathogen, which is highly transmissible, you know, all year round, like we're constantly transmitting viruses to one another. Um, will our bodies be prepared to fend off that viral pathogen? Right, so I think that's what you were mentioning, you were speaking to, the ability of the, the, the bodies of the folks who casually or therapeutically are already consuming cannabis, and what we're now sort of starting to recognize, which is an in, a decreased incidence of severe COVID-19 disease. So I think we're ready to have that conversation, absolutely. Joe Rosado. Well, to dovetail what Dr. Knox has just stated, you know, uh, a wise, a wiser man than myself said, an ounce of prevention is equal to a pound of cure. And so prevention is the key. And that's what I've been promoting is the utilization of the phytocannabinoids, whole plant medicine for building your immune system, but also addressing the anxiety and distress that a hundred percent of my patients are going through. You know, we, we are still in practice, and because it has been deemed an essential business in the state of Florida, uh, uh, the medical dispensaries are open. And so they've created new innovative ways for patients to be able to get their medication, you know, free delivery to uh, anyone 65 years of age or older. They're having special hours available for immunocompromised patients. So they're really thinking outside of the box. The state of Florida has allowed for us to provide telemedicine for follow-up visits and recertification visits, so that we, you know, we don't have to see them face to face in the same room the way the law reads. Again, to avoid the possibility of any exposure, but 100% of our patients are dealing with stress, anxiety, not being able to work for the past two and a half, three months. Businesses closed, restaurants closed. You know, not sure if they're going to be able to bounce back from this. You know, and so in conjunction with building up your immune system, stress is a great detriment to the immune system. And so by building up and maintaining a sense of peace, calm, and tranquility, or as Dr. Lumir Hanush talked about, the bliss, you know, that, that bliss, the anandamide, you know, being blissful and doing the best that we can under the circumstances that we're living in. Great. Uh, Dr. Carrillo. Yes, uh, well, I agree completely with my colleagues, Dr. Knox and Dr. Rosado. And definitely in these moments, it is a worldwide crisis. We are all facing a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety. And we've been seeing actually something so important that uh, there is like a, a major pandemic that is right now obesity in the States. Uh, the the uh, rates of obesity are very high and we see the patients with this type of comorbidities, obesity and endocrinology problems, high blood pressure, they have a very high risk to contract the virus and to get complications. So at first, uh, before talking to the plant, I talk about what uh, uh, Joseph and Rachel were saying. Is first, we have to balance our body. We have to balance our endocannabinoid tone because all this unbalance is the one who can lead us to have all this comorbidity. So first of all, you need to know what you eat, how to eat your things. You need to supplement and you need to use uh, the endocannabinoid system as as a, a, a dampening system 
to boost your immune system. So in these moments, it's very important not just to thinking in how to treat, but we also, as Joseph said, we need to prevent. And comorbidities like, like obesity like, like obesity are the ones who are really killing these patients. So we have to think about that and of course, and the benefits that the cannabis has uh, with uh, anti-inflammation, with immunomodulations. So, so those are all topics and it actually um, scientists uh, all over the world right now doing research that we will be talking further. Uh, that uh, Right now they don't have uh, the result but I see uh, that it's very promising what they're doing. And, and in the same way, they're doing research with other type of medications. But uh, for me, it's very exciting to be that cannabis, again, uh, uh, is being researched uh, in this matter. We have Dr. Uh, Professor Deddy Mary at the Technion Israel Institute. He is conducting right now two, two types of studies of research. One, to see what the properties of the plant to immunomodulate and reduce inflammation. And he is also checking about the ACE2 receptors. That is what Rachel was mentioning earlier because we know that these virus come through our body. Uh, through the ACE2 receptors that we have located in our lungs, in our mucus, in our uh, GI tract. So this is the gateway. And if we get to and we are able to uh, produce uh, a modulation of all those ACE2 receptors, we can block or de diminish the, the production of all these cytokines. That I think we will be talking in the future of these uh, conversations about the deepest, the deepest part of research that has been done. But definitely it's a very important topic and I see every day patients calling me, asking me, what should I do? Should I take my, my uh, should I continue my, my protocol of cannabis? Because I have uh, rheumatoid arthritis, I have anxiety. So there is a lot of patients that they, they have their treatments since the very beginning with uh, medical cannabis and they they get scared, they need to know, so they need reassurance of these uh, um, uh, situations. So it's very important, uh, Steve, that you're giving the space uh, to physicians and, and scientists to, to explore and explain to the community, what are the things that are out there? Uh, and that is very important because I do see a lot of misinformation in media, in media and it's very scary because people can take that information and make mistakes. And we're talking about something so serious that is the COVID, uh, that is for all of us unknown. We are all just uh, learning how is this virus, uh, virus uh, behaving. So I guess, I guess I think it's very important to talk about this. Well, I'm so glad we're having the conversation. Uh, it seems to me that you all agree that, that cannabis is, is effective now for reducing comorbidities that are associated with COVID, especially extreme COVID cases, uh, and that cannabis uh, is effective in reducing uh, the stress that almost everybody is going through now, uh, which also erodes our, our immune system. So we know that there's those two ways that we feel comfortable talking about cannabis. Uh, now, Dr. Carrillo just got into this very interesting uh, question about whether or not cannabis can help dampen the cytokine storm. 
And um, uh, if, if, if one of you, whoever you feel is most qualified, could just explain that science in a way that all of our uh, viewers that don't have scientific training would be able to understand. Dr. Knox, you want to take this one? <laughs> sure, everybody piggyback um, where you can. <laughs> yeah, so when we are in infected by a viral pathogen, for example, right, that's a very relevant example, our body mounts an immune response. It'll um, mount um, an innate immune response as well as an adaptive immune response. So we have two barriers uh, that are innate to our body, natural to our body to fend off these viral pathogens so they don't take a foothold, like I mentioned, and replicate and spread throughout our body. So it's actually important for our bodies to amount some degree of an Im immune response and recruit immune factors. Cytokines are signals that are necessary to recruit those immune factors to fight off a viral pathogen, for example. But now we're seeing what we're calling this hyper response through the cytokines that's creating the storm. It's like a storm of inflammation. And unfortunately, that inflammatory storm can extend throughout the body. And that's one of the reasons we're, we're seeing multi-organ uh, multi system failure in a lot of these COVID-19 patients. It's just a super hyper-inflammatory response. So again, when we're talking about some of the hallmark features of phytocannabinoids, one of those being, um, and terpenes too, let's not leave out terpenes, uh, being an anti-inflammatory anti in nature, some of them also antiviral, that's why we're starting to think that there might, aha, be a place for cannabis, right, that treasure trove of phytochemicals, cannabinoids and terpenes to help quell that storm or prevent that storm from happening in the first place. That's pretty remarkable information. Um, uh, how solid do we think the science is speaking to this, you know, potential power of cannabis to, um, to, it sounds like prevent and treat cytokine storm. Well, what you, what, what's needed are scavengers to go in and take up what are called the free radicals that are being produced by these cytokines and by the disease. Because for example, I've read some of the reports of the autopsies that were done in the countries that had to face and deal with COVID-19 prior to the US. And one of the things that they discovered was that the virus attacks the red blood cell, causing kind of like a displacement or a movement of the hemoglobin, which is what is responsible for transporting oxygen. So imagine if you will, a structure that looks like an X. And right here in the middle is where the iron is bound, an iron atom is bound there, but at the tips of my fingers and at my knuckles, you have oxygen. There are four oxygen molecules that latch onto that one hemoglobin. Once that's displaced and it causes the red blood cell to be destroyed, that iron now is flowing freely, causing that free radical, and we need that scavenger or a macrophage or white blood cell to come in and like a Pac-Man gobble it up. Okay, now with that decrease in oxygen, because now you have four oxygen atoms that are unable to latch onto each one of those points, the oxygen levels drop. And now there's an inability of an exchange as you breathe in oxygen and release carbon dioxide. You've got this excess carbon dioxide in your system causing your oxygen levels to drop and 
people's oxygen saturation are deteriorating, as Dr. Knox mentioned, you have a multi-system destruction because no oxygen is being transported in the blood. And by not having oxygen transporting to the blood, now your tissues are not getting the oxygen, and that's causing what's called a stress, a oxidative stress, where you have additional stress. Well, there's tons of research out there demonstrating how cannabis, both CBD, THC, as well as other phytocannabinoids, address this stress oxidation because it works kind of like a Pac-Man going through and gobbling up this excess oxidative stress that's going on, causing a rusting, if you will, of the body uh, from the inside out. Okay, so I think we've talked uh, about three ways then that that cannabis is effective as, as, as what I'm getting, right? We've got our stress reduction in terms of our psychology and emotions. We've got the reduction in comorbidities. And then we have the ability, well, the possible ability of cannabis to quell the cytokine storms. What about infectability? Um, it, do we have any good science on whether cannabis can reduce infectability? And, and, and what is that in plain language? Dr. Carrillo, do you want to take that? Yeah, well, I would like to mention regarding to the actual uh, research or papers that are out there uh, regarding the treatment of um, uh, patients with COVID-19 and specifically with cannabinoids. And there is just like two or three studies right now. One of them was made by the University of Lethbridge that is a, it's not, a, a not, peer, it's not peer reviewed. So I will say that what they're doing is they are exploring uh, different uh, uh, types of uh, cannabis, cannabinoids, uh, mo most of them CBD rich. And they are just trying to assess how these uh, cannabinoids can reduce the, the um, immune response. But again, this is not a peer-reviewed article. They, they released it and, uh, because they wanted just to get the information out there. So for the scientific community, I think it's very important that, we, that when we're going to talk about scientific uh, uh, research, we need to know what type of publications are we looking at. So this is specific uh, um, a study. I mean, they, they did, they, I know they're trying to do it because they want to find uh, an approach or a good way to help these patients, but still not peer-reviewed, so we still don't know uh, uh, how, how important or valid could be that until, until it's being peer-reviewed and there is actually as I mentioned before these uh, two studies they are conducting uh, uh, for daddy mayor in Israel he created uh, he has in his laboratory he's got certified as a corona lab and he's been working in these uh, in these two studies one and the second one that is uh, looking at the ACE2 receptors and um, more with the terpene formulation he's uh, using different types of terpenes and in the first study is to use different types of compounds of the plants to try to bring down the um, 
immunitary response uh, because we know that uh, CBD particularly have a specific actions on uh, reducing and do down regulation of interleukins like interleukin one, two, and six. Actually, interleukin six is very important in the development of this um, cytokine storm and is one of the producers more damage. So talking about this and the research, we have previous research from uh, before 2020 of researchers, uh, even a, a, a very important research that I saw from University of South Carolina, even in 2010, he was doing uh, a lot of different uh, uh, testing in uh, different uh, in disease that they course with a lot of immunoresponse. So they were proving how CBD has a very valuable potential in treat uh, pathologies like rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, and different types of pathologies where inflammation is really, really important and where they, it's very important to have a certain level of immune suppression. The, the fact with the COVID is this is a virus that everybody is just, we are learning about it. So we, is, we have to be very careful in not to extrapolate the result from other studies. As I say, that the, uh, in 2010, that this study and they show that there is actually uh, downregulation of the interleukins in, in certain, and, and they've been doing these um, experiments in, in rodents and animal models. And I actually, it's important to say that this study of the University of Lethbridge, the, the article that is not peer reviewed, they are doing it in uh, actually, uh, and um, tissues are 3D. Uh, still, we don't have, of course, any uh, studies in humans. And what we have is preclinical studies. And it's very different when you have preclinical or in vitro that we're doing in animals or in tissues than when we do it in, in humans. So, as scientists and doctors, we have to be very careful when we're talking about scientific evidence uh, because it's very important that people have always the right information and to know that right now, regarding to COVID, we don't have scientific papers backing up or rejecting the use of cannabinoids. They are, a lot of scientists are trying to build research and, and information, and, and I, I think it's looking very uh, um, promissory. So I look in, in the next years to see, to see good results uh, or, or uh, important results about this. Thank you. Um, would all of you agree that it's fair to say at this point that we have solid science regarding the reduction of comorbidities and stress regarding cannabis? and that we have early indications that cannabis may be effective in reducing the infectability of, of the virus and, and potentially in helping treat the virus. But we don't have uh, hard science and we're really in a position of, of at this point needing more science before we can make that, that determination. Well, in, in the past 10 years, 10 years ago in 2010, uh, from 2009 through 2012, I was a communicable disease director for a county health department here in the state of Florida. And I oversaw the epidemiology department. And in 2010, being involved with infectious disease and communicable diseases, I managed the STD clinic and the HIV clinic. 
And back in 2010, there was a paper that was published that indicated that uh, specifically four types of viruses, herpes simplex virus 2, HSV2, um, HIV, um, Kaposi sarcoma associated herpes virus, uh, the influenza virus, and the vesicular stomatis uh, virus. Those five viruses, I misspoke five instead of four. Um, cannabis users or individuals that use cannabinoid treatments had a substantially increased viral load. And they even said that the CD4 counts would drop and their viral loads would increase. This was 2010. In 2011, they published another study showing that the use of cannabis in, with SIV, simian immunocompromised virus, caused an increase in the CD4 count and a decrease in the viral load, and it was beneficial. Fast forward to 2017, they've published another study showing that cannabis does benefit patients with HIV, not only because of the neuropathy that they experience because of the medications that they're on, or if they hit AIDS because it, it stimulates their appetite. But in 2017, they've shown that it does indeed improve their immunity and give them the ability to ward off and fight off the HIV virus or the HIV. Therefore, that's with HIV over a span of 10 years. As we've already discussed, they call it the novel coronavirus. It's novel, it's freaking new. You know, the stuff that we're learning, the stuff that we're reading is coming from countries that were ahead of us, but they're still trying to figure it out. So to stand up and say, we know the answers or we know what's, what's causing this pandemic is bullshit. There's no way, you know, we have educated guesses based on what we've experienced over the past, you know, in my case, over the past 10 years working and dealing with infectious diseases and then moving into the cannabis space. But, you know, there's still a lot for us to learn. And in five, 10 years, you know, things will come out and say, yeah, cannabis is the treatment for X, Y, Z. But right now, you know, we have to tread a fine line because if we don't, if we're not backed by science and that's the biggest challenge, I'm sure all three of us on the panel as physicians get from our colleagues. Oh, I would use it, but there's not enough research. I would use it, but where's the science? I would use it, but where's the double blind, you know, double blind, you know, gold standard testing. So, you know, to, to you know, we, we are advocates, but we're also physicians. And so we have to walk, you know, that fine line. I see you nodding your head, Dr. Knox. <laughs> Well, we, we, we don't know what we don't know. And I think what, when we say cannabis, we're talking about a catch-all genus of so many chemical varieties. We do not know which strain, right, which chemical profile will be more effective in doing any, any of these things, right? Um, warding off um, infectivity, or excuse me, reducing infectivity, treating that cytokine storm. We don't know. So when we say cannabis, that's very different than the phytocannabinoid or collection of phytochemicals that might be used in these particular studies. And beyond that, this is all condition specific too. All the studies that we do have that are preclinical or even clinical are on specific viruses. You know, that novel coronavirus that we're dealing with right now, could he turn into, can mutate into a whole you know, new virus next year, which has a slightly different, you know, uh, pathogenesis in that. In the it's already body. mutated in China. Yes, 
Yes. So we don't, know, we don't know what, we don't know how much, we don't know when, like what's the timing. There's still a lot of questions that need to be asked. And so I, I'm, I'm really hopeful though that this demonstrates how important cannabis research is. I'm hoping that between 2020 and 2030, we have a new decade of research. You know, back in the 1990s, we called um, the research that spun out of, of discovering the endocannabinoid system, the decade of the brain. I, I hope this is the decade of the endocannabinoid system and cannabis. I, I hope this is just one major call to action to researchers everywhere, that there are so many unanswered questions that cannabis could have a solution for. Well, the next question that I'm going to ask you after the one I'm going to ask you all now is going to relate to why aren't we hearing more conversation about cannabis and COVID in a serious way? I think that to sum up our conversation thus far, it would be safe to say that there are demonstrated scientific properties of cannabis that are useful in the treatment of, of or, or prevention of COVID. And, and there, is, there are early indications of science that it could be used uh, in the prevention and treatment of, of COVID. If that's true, how come we're not hearing more conversation about that in the media? That's what I'm gonna ask you next. But I'd like to ask you now, and, uh, and I'll start with you, Dr. Knox, because I have you, is for each of you to just summarize what you see regarding COVID and cannabis in your own practice. Yeah, you know, so, Thankfully, we have a telemedicine practice. So we, so COVID, right? The pandemic itself has not really um, reduced our ability, ability to see patients. We already had that well established. Um, second to that, no. To to my knowledge, our our patients, the four doctors in my practice, our patients have not um, been the patients that have been hospitalized with COVID nineteen. So that begs the question. Right? Are, are they coming into contact with, have they contracted it, um, or have they done better in spite of them contracting? We don't have those questions, or excuse me, those answers. Um, but I will say it has changed a bit the way we have counseled. We may or may not get into smoking cannabis at this time, um, but we, we all, in my family at, at least, believe that smoking anything um, can cause an inflammatory reaction in the lung, right, that can actually increase the risk of infectability, right, very acutely. There's a very acute window <laughs> of irritation that can compromise our immune system. So we have been making recommendations to reduce um, smoking, if not completely, you know, cease smoking. For the patients of ours who find the most benefit through smoking or, or vaping, the recommendation is to decrease your risk of contracting the virus. So social distancing for those patients becomes exponentially more important so that they don't contract that virus while also smoking their cannabis, thus increasing their infectability. So, so um, from my perspective, the, most of what we've seen is just our um, a change in our practices, a change in our consultation practices so that we're helping mitigate the risk of your, these unwanted COVID-19 um, outcomes. Thank you. Dr. Carrillo, what are, what are you seeing in your practice? Well, you know what I've seen? Uh, so far, I haven't had any patient that is uh, uh, positive for COVID-19. 
But what I, I find a tremendous value is in all these people that has been uh, under lockdown. And, and, I, and I say a lot of people just having anxiety, panic attacks, lack of sleeping, insomnia. They even having problems with their husbands. I mean, with the children. So people is really in a very high stage of stress. And, and I find, and of, of course you all know these, the, the, the cannabis, medical cannabis, phytocannabinoids, particularly in this case is CBD, it really works and help these patients to calm down, to relax, to be able to sleep, to decrease the anxiety, to have panic attacks. And we all know that the lack of sleeping, the anxiety on the depression can mess up with all your endocrine system. And with the cortisol levels, all that becomes a threat for your body and, and makes you uh, be more, more vulnerable to infections and disease. So I just find that the, this, uh, uh, the medical cannabis has a, a tremendous uh, value in these moments of, of crisis and there's a lot of people with isolation. And as Rachel said, I, I find also that we, because we all are locked down and we are doing uh, by the phone, by Skype, telemedicine, uh, we have a very close relationship with the patients uh, and it's even closer. So I, I do think uh, the, the, to, to treat patients in these cases, it has to be a very individualized um, uh, approach is not a, a recipe for everybody and as Rachel says there is different types different uh, different chemo bars different uh, genetic predisposition of the patient so I do think that the patients right now are leaning on a lot on the doctors because they are afraid of everything they even afraid to go to the hospitals so I think as for physicians we need to be empathic patient and understand and, and be able to educate the patients because they don't know what is good, what is bad. And, and as Rachel say, I promote a lot, all the important things, because even if the patient it doesn't feel or it doesn't have access to phytocannabinoids uh, to boost your endocannabinoid system through proper sleeping, uh, proper nutrition, eating the right food, exercising, meditation. For those that cannot have access to, to the phytocannabinoids, there is ways that you can increase or boost your endocannabinoid system. So that will help you to protect yourself in these moments. Thank you. Thank you. And Dr. Joe, um, what are you seeing in your cannabis consuming patients relative to COVID? Well, um, I'm not only a physician, I'm also a patient. And last year, such as yourself, I traveled to Asia, Southeast Asia, Central America, South America. I was in Mexico, traveled all over the United States and many of the countries that were hit the hardest. I was there. I was in Italy. I was in uh, Tokyo, Japan. I was in China. I was in Thailand. I was in Malaysia. So I was like freaking out. Uh, but during the entire time I was traveling, I had, you know, my medication with me. And um, I tested myself for the antibody and I came back negative. Thus far of, our, you know, all of our patients, I've yet to hear one of our patients have tested positive for the COVID-19 whether it be the acute, you know, or the antibody testing. I do because I'm on staff with 
some of the medical schools as a, as a proctor, as well as the nurse practitioner schools. I have consulted with my students on some patients that they've had in the hospital that were COVID-19 positive. And unfortunately, you know, one of the five that were presented to me made it, the other four did not. Um, and so in speaking with them, I've, you know, learned a lot of what they've come across and how the body has deteriorated in such a short span of time. The University of Miami is conducting a survey study where they're gathering data from cannabis users to be able to provide, and they want to see what the differences are in those of us that have been using cannabis and those of us that have not, and do a comparison in the era of COVID-19. And uh, we've been promoting that amongst the state of Florida, you know, the 300,000 cannabis patients that we have right now that are registered and trying to get as much data as possible through the University of Miami to see what they come up with, you know, upon gathering all the data that, that's available. That's great news. So we now have a, uh, some science being developed in response to what seems to be, from my conversations, uh, widespread anecdotal evidence that cannabis may be effective in preventing COVID. I've been asking this question quite regularly now. And the only person who came back to me uh, and said that they knew people who were regular cannabis consumers that had gotten COVID was uh, talking about a dinner party that was held in Mexico City in, re or no, excuse me, a dinner party that was held in Barcelona in conjunction with Spanibus just before Spanibus was canceled due to the COVID. And apparently several, uh, it was uh, a lot of people there, probably a couple hundred people at that dinner. There were a few people who did come down with COVID, but all of those cases were minor enough not to require hospitalization. And we're unclear you know, how much cannabis those attendees do or do not consume. It was impossible to track. But I think it's fair to say from my conversations that there are uh, widespread early indications uh, that cannabis uh, consumers are not reporting getting COVID. Uh, and, uh, and so that's, that study from, from Miami, uh, I think is going to be hugely helpful. So given um, that we've been spending the better part of an hour discussing all of the evidence that there is that cannabis uh, can be effective in preventing and treating COVID, why are we not hearing a serious conversation about it? Why has the federal government of the United States, instead of funding research into these possibilities, instead funded a study which is expressly designed to show that cannabis uh, makes people more vulnerable to COVID. Dr. Knox, you wanna take that from the top? Sure, I can, you know, I think right now there's been a lot of emphasis on vaccination as well as, you know, acute treatment. And while we're beginning to do some research on the benefits of cannabis in the acute setting, I don't think we have enough yet for anybody to hang their hat on in, in on the front lines, right? In the hospital where they're dealing with active cases day in and day out. This is, you know, it's evolving so quickly. There's not a whole lot we even know about the coronavirus itself. Um, so, you know, on one end of the spectrum, I think that might be a rationale, you know, a, a reason. On the other end of the spectrum, there's still a stigma. 
we know that <laughs> there's still this overarching stigma and fear of cannabis. And, you know, it, I feel in part it's due to what has become right gold standard um, uh, research as well as patents on, you know, single molecule drugs, et cetera. I think that cannabis research will crack open a lot of cans of worms. I think that cannabis research stands to disrupt medicine as we know it. And I do believe that there are people who would prefer that it not. Um, so that's the other end of the spectrum. We might be somewhere in the middle. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but I do suspect that we're still, well, I know that we're still um, being repressed and suppressed with respect to advancing cannabis science and research, especially in the medical setting. Like I say this all the time too, Cannabis has not been proven definitively harmful or even broadly harmful. And in a lot of ways, the preclinical and even some clinical studies validate exactly what we're seeing from a historical perspective, um, you know, ethnobotanical perspective, and even an anecdotal uh, perspective. We see it in our clinics. And we believe at you know, American Cannabinoid Clinics that we have enough preclinical and clinical data to give us some latitude when we are counseling patients on using the products that are at their disposal. Somebody has to help translate the science for them now, right? So we clinicians actually cannot afford to wait until we have you know, a suite of ex trials from which to make our clinical decisions from. We have to act now. So we really need to pull in the best of both worlds. Can we start accumulating data at the clinical level so that we can inform research while at the same time pouring in what we're learning from research and come to cl clinically meaningful directives now? And I think the answer is yes. Dr. Carrillo, your thoughts? Well, I couldn't agree more with Rachel and actually what Joseph said about the study in Florida, it, it wouldn't be great and I will encourage whomever can do it in different hospitals because it's so easy. You just go and see the records of the patients that, because it's thousands and millions of, of, of patients with, uh, with COVID. So you can just go and check which ones reported to use uh, cannabis. Of course, they're going to be uh, uh, they use uh, uh, in a different manner, but that could give us an idea for some type of statistics. Uh, I am a professor uh, and I am a physician and I know that when you're going to talk to doctors, you have to talk with scientific evidence, backed up, and, and putting all out there, papers, peer-reviewed, a double-blind, placebo-controlled, all these things when you're talking to, 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 to doctors, when you're teaching. So as a professor, I relate with that, but as a physician, when, when you have patients, I mean, you need to hear what the patient said, what what their experience are. It's, I see that is uh, people tend to dismiss the the, the reports of, of the patients, the, the cases of what they say. I know they 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 are not significant as a scientific evidence, but you have a bunch of patients saying, I'm using this, I'm doing this, and I'm doing well. Uh, you have to hear them because, because their voices are very valid and, and relying on that, uh, you don't rely on that to make decisions, but you rely on that to look further, to encourage more the research. So I just think that the easiest way 
to, to move forward to this will be do what the Dr. Rosado is doing, uh, told me is doing in, uh, they're doing in Florida. Just go to the, all the hospitals and start checking. These are like a retrospective study and it's not even that complicated because the only thing that you have to do is to look back. The patients who had COVID, the ones, ha how much time they were in the hospital, which ones got the, with complications, which ones were using cannabis, which one knows, it's just like, and, and we will we will have beautiful data from there that we can uh, encourage us more to do more deep investigation, more in the interleukins into the ACE2 receptors so we can build uh, a proper data around this COVID that of course is unknown for, for all of us and it's very hard to make a statement at this point. Nobody wants to make a statement on anything. I mean, not even the big pharma, not anybody, everybody is scared and waiting to see who jumps on the on the water and and, and kind of uh, waiting because whomever jumps they will attack it and I see this in COVID and it's it's, it's funny I'll say funny for not saying sad but when I, I've seen webinars talking about COVID and cannabis medical cannabis and and they get censored uh, because they're talking about that so so I, I just think we need to keep our minds uh, open and, and medical cannabis is being proven to have a lot of value for different pathologies. We still need to keep doing research on regarding of COVID because this is something new and we still don't have enough uh, evidence to, to say anything, but, but I'm very excited because I see scientists from all over the world looking into this question. Yeah, the stigma is so powerful, right? I started this uh, this conversation by sharing how stigma prevented me, me, from really embracing the idea that cannabis might be effective for COVID in the beginning. I was so afraid that I would make an unsupported claim and I would inadvertently reverse a lot of the progress that we've made. So, so even me, I've been affected by the stigma and I'm so glad we're having the conversation for that reason. I want to be respectful of all of your time. So I'm going to go to Dr. Rosado for your last question. Dr. Rosado, I'd like you to do two things. If you could uh, focus on what you think that we could do, what, what the next steps should be to drive serious cannabis COVID research forward. And then let us know a little bit about what you're up to, uh, how our audience can keep in touch with you uh, moving forward. Absolutely. Um, and I share the same challenge that you did, Steve. Um, a few months ago, I did a global webinar, you know, a town hall, town hall meeting, physicians and scientists from all over the world. And because at that time, they were saying not to use anti-inflammatories, aspirin or steroids, because it promoted and made the conditions worse. Looks like we've we've lost you there for a moment, Dr. Rosado. Yeah, you know, and then as time progressed and I started reading what stuff was happening in Israel, I'm like, you freaking moron. You know, you've written books, you've spoken all over the world on this topic, and here you are telling people, no, wait, hold off, because yeah, it's an anti-inflammatory and it's an antioxidant, but you know, big pharma says not to use 
NSAIDs or steroids. And so, and here I am, you know, like as my grandfather used to say, preaching morality in my underwear. It's like, you know, it's, it's really challenging. But to take that further, you know, in Israel, one of the studies that I, that I came across was that one of the clinical trials that they're doing is combining CBD with steroids on patients with COVID that are, have been hospitalized, that are in the hospital setting, to see how the combination of the CBD with the steroid is supporting the inflammation that's going on at the level of the lungs as well as the entire body. Um, there's also another study that I read uh, regarding terpenes uh, and the antiviral properties of terpenes. We understand and have seen how um, cannabis, medical cannabis, and terpene use have um, block the replication of the hepatitis C virus, um, you know, by 86%. So it stands to reason that if it is that powerful on that type of a virus to see how the terpenes and the, you know, whole plant work on the COVID-19, but specifically looking at the terpenes. And then a third study that I saw was them using um, CBD kind of like in, in the form of an exosome or small cell structures that are created when stem cells multiply. And so it's kind of like a honing device where like a homing missile to go in after those organs that have been things that the original pioneers in the medical cannabis movement are already looking at and investigating. So it's, it's impressive and, you know, heartwarming for those of us that love the plant and promote the plant and promote the whole plant for the treatment. Um, as far as recommendations that I give to my patients, I agree with Dr. Knox regarding the combustion of cannabis. However, uh, there is a dispensary here in town that has a handheld um, inhaler, kind of like an asthma inhaler, like a rescue inhaler, and they get their medication like a regular albuterol type inhaler where you squeeze it, inhale, and they get their medication that way. So that's you know advantageous for that situation. Also, uh, something else that I recommend is dry vaping, where you get a handheld vaporizer and you're able to control the temperature setting on the handheld vaporizer without mentioning any you know companies. Uh, you can control the temperature setting on them and you're able to take advantage and get more of the acids and utilize more of the CBDAs, the THCA, the CBGA, as well as the CBG, which we know is five times as potent as CBD as an anti-inflammatory. And so being able to regulate the temperature and setting at a lower temperature, you're able to take greater advantage. You're not combusting, but you are inhaling and getting the medication into the fastest way possible after suppositories. As far as something else that I'm involved in, um, I published my book on 420 2019. No, uh, no coincidence on that 420. <laughs> it's in uh, English, um, Hope and Healing, the Case for Cannabis, and the foreword was written by Professor Lumir Hanoush. And because I've been in Central America, South America, I'm bilingual and bicultural, I got a lot of crap from the people in Colombia. Dr. Carrillo in particular, as to why the book was not in Spanish. So in December of 2019, the book was translated by one of her countrymen into Spanish. So there you have it. 
Right. Oh, right. Right news. <laughs> and uh, um, uh, Dr. Carrillo, maybe you could uh, answer that same question. It, uh, you've already told us that you think that Miami study should be replicated in many other hospitals. Any other thoughts on, on what we should do next? And tell us what's going on with you and how we can stay in touch. Yes, well, Steve, um, I think regarding to research, there's a lot, a lot of way that we have to do uh, uh, studies and things. And what we have is very preliminary and it's very early to say that any of the studies uh, haven't concluded yet. And, and the only one that, that we mentioned is not peer-reviewed. So, so we are in a very early stage of research. So my word will be, let's keep uh, uh, working. Let's keep our uh, open mind because I think there is a lot of potential, but we need to back it up with uh, scientific uh, evidence. And it's very important, the initiatives of, of, uh, of Florida, and, and I hope like in the countries that is uh, possible to do research in this matter, they can, they can do it because there is a lot uh, of, uh, of things that we can do regarding to this matter of, of COVID. And I, and I think there is potential uh, for uh, phytocannabinoids in helping these patients. But uh, as I said before, as a professor and as a doctor, we need to be backed up by scientific evidence in order to say uh, that works or it doesn't work. So time will tell. For now, it's very important uh, to, to encourage the, the patients to, of course, stay safe, uh, apply all the safety measures of hygiene, uh, boost their immune system with nutrition, with exercise. Uh, that is very, very important. Uh, keep their weight down and all this. Uh, try to reduce or prevent the comorbidities that are actually the 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 potential killer for the patients because there, as you know, there's many, uh, many, many patients and population that contract the virus and they're even asymptomatic and they are, uh, they, they just get a, like a flu and, and nothing happens to that. But it's those patients with the comorbidities, the ones who go to go to the intensive care unit and the one who have the, the fatality. So we have to focus in the education of, of the people is very, is very important and to keep very close the relation uh, with the patient, doctor-patient, as I said, we need to be as doctors and physicians, very empathic in these moments. Uh, with the patients and very patient too with our patients uh, and be very careful uh, with all the misinformation because it's very, it's a lot, you know, on a click, a person can find so many things that claim that uh, help with the COVID or the prevent COVID. And, and, and this is a, it's a tremendous amount of misinformation and bad information that people need to learn how to assess what is good, what is bad, and, and not uh, start believing everything they read in internet because that's what you have, reliable sources to, to assess it. And even if you don't know how to look in internet, this is the, the advice I give to the patients, ask to your physician, I mean, the sad part is not all the, all the physicians are 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 full uh, immersed in the, into these topics, but but they are they are learning and seeing this. But as to 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 your family practitioner or to your specialist before you make any any decisions, 
in my case, I, I've been working a lot in education. I am working on an educational platform to train Latin American doctors because I do see in the States you have a lot of good programs for training doctors, and that's wonderful uh, because what we need right now is to, uh, as I said, is like spread the word, and we need the scientific community to learn and know more about medical cannabis. So I've been trying to make it more formal. I am a professor of the University of Panama. I'm in charge of the scientific program for medical cannabis, and we are creating educational programs to train doctors and healthcare practitioners, and the same in Colombia. I am the president of the Colombian Medical Association for Cannabinoids Medicine. So with the association, we're a group of doctors from all the specialties from different parts of Colombia, and it's the same. We are moving forward with education, trying to integrate the disciplines of uh, pharmacists, uh, um, uh, a dentist, uh, all the disciplines that are involved in medical cannabis to explain them and train them and show them all the benefits that the phytocannabinoids and how the endocannabinoid system works. So uh, also I've been working on my, I have clinics in Colombia, so I've been working in, in, in keeping up with the, now with the new model of telemedicine and a lot of uh, different projects that I'm very excited of, as I was telling you earlier, Earlier, uh, I thought this quarantine was going to be good to spend time in family and relax, but I've been finding myself busier than ever. And, and as, uh, as you were mentioning last year, I was traveling the whole year to different continents and countries. So I thought this year I was going to be relaxing. It didn't happen, and, but I'm very happy it didn't happen because this, I think we are at the right moment for medical cannabis without a very special moment because I see the shift in the mentality even of doctors and I like that and, and it's really encouraging me and motivates me because I see 85 year doctor calling me uh, internal medicine uh, neurologist telling me Sandra I want to learn more about medical cannabis I know the words where can I get trained how can I learn and, and, and this is amazing because I do see the shifting and as, as Rachel was saying and we see that this is a global trend that we have and this is going to change the perspective of the way all doctors we see medicine I'm, i am so glad to to hear so many doctors echoing uh something that i was afraid to say uh, a, a few years ago uh, but i'm not at all afraid to say it now which is i think that uh, cannabis is going to be the rediscovery of therapeutic properties of cannabis more uh, well put is going to rank as the most important medical discovery of of all time uh, so i very much appreciate all of you dr knox i'm going to let you uh, answer our last question it, it will be the same question uh, what are our next steps and what are you up to how can our viewers and listeners stay in touch with you? Well, my next steps are to really pick up my travel game because I am so <laughs> far behind all three of you. <laughs> I wish I could have said I traveled too over the last year. Oh man, awesome. Um, all right, so I wrote, I jotted some things down so I don't miss them. So first and foremost, um, you know, Dr. Rosado, I echo you. Right now, I'll say short of a boom in cannabis research, I'm really calling on industry to step up here. Um, form factor innovations are necessary. 
aerosols is one you know that sticks out to me big time with respect to the context of this COVID-19 crisis and our call to reduce you know consumption of our our smokables, um, our inhalables, if you will. So meter dose inhalers are an example of a form factor innovation that is highly relevant and we could not have more of them <laughs> at this time um, than we do now. Um, and also, you know, in, in the context of cannabis being considered essential, right? We're actually talking about cannabis and its use as a wellness, you know, commodity or as medicine. So I really want the patient story to return to the forefront of this legalization movement, right? If, if we're saying that cannabis is essential for its therapeutic purposes, well, I really need the industry to demonstrate that it actually believes that. I want us to focus on the patients, and if not the patients, I want us to focus on creating high, consistent, um, consistently high uh, quality products because whether you're recreating or medicating, the plant is pharmacologically active in the body in the same way. So our emphasis needs to be on high quality, safe products. Um, and industry isn't alone. Like I wanna call on, on med medical care, healthcare in general to really understand that when we physicians or healthcare providers at large are talking about cannabis as medicine, we're really talking about the endocannabinoid system. We doctors learn anatomy <laughs> and, then, and then physiology before we learn the pharmacology of substances, right? So I'm calling on all of us to preach endocannabinology as opposed to cannabis medicine, because as an endocannabinologist, you're going to specialize in cannabis medicine by default. So I want to see us um, start to care for the endocannabinoid system. And as Dr. Carrillo said, that includes talking about food. I mean, we didn't talk about it today, so maybe on a future episode, Steve, we can talk about cannabimimetics, right? The substances and practices that work on the endocannabinoid system similarly to phytocannabinoids, right? Um, but that means food, herbal supplementation, detoxing, stress management, <laughs> and reduction. And then I have to put on, I wrote this down so I would remember spirituality. Um, all remarks, uh, Dr. Carrillo, it's so important. I would like to see a, a pathway to fellowship so that we can subspecialize in endocannabinology. Um, I'm working with the American Can Academy of Cannabinoid Medicine to start talking about that and start developing that pathway for us. And lastly, things that I'm up to, I'm up to a whole lot of things. I do, I spend a lot of time um, consulting to policymakers, legislators, and regulators on cannabis medicine and the, you know, the frameworks of medical programs in our states. Um, but beyond that, my family too has gotten involved with education. We just launched Cannabis Grand Rounds last month. Our first Grand Rounds was on cannabis and viral illness. And you can find that at adventacademy.com. This month, um, we've departed from viral illnesses. Our, our, our subject is cannabis and autism. So definitely check those out. Um, and then last, I'm really excited to, to mention that here in Portland, where I reside, We've um, founded an organization called the Cannabis Health Equity Movement and Coalition, and it's all about leveraging cannabis, its legalization, its taxation, its economy, and its innovations 
to establish pathways to health equity for all people. So we're just getting off the ground. So I hope in very short order, I'll be able to launch the organization and its mission through all of our social media platforms. And lastly, I can be found at Rachel Doc Knox on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on Instagram. I use the same handle for everything in my family, the Knox Docs at the Knox Docs is our IG handle and our website is DrsKnox.com. Thank you so much. Everybody's links uh, and bios are on the podcast description. Um, I appreciate all of you so very much, uh, both for being generous with your time in this conversation, but but just uh, for being so courageous, for really being the tip of the spear in cannabis medicine at a time when there is a real reputational risk that's associated with doing that. And it's, it is so important. Uh, I can remember a time when I couldn't have conversations like this. I was still in the stage of trying to convince every medical professional that I knew uh, that cannabis actually had medical effect. Uh, and so to be able to get a variety of perspectives from uh, uh, medical professionals in a variety of different environments, this level of sophistication is, is, is just, um, it's a wonderful thing for me as an activist. Um, we are going to wrap up now. A few things have become clear for me in the course of this conversation. One is that uh, there already is good science uh, showing that cannabis is effective for things like reducing stress and the comorbidities associated with COVID. Uh, that much is very clear. There are early indications, signs which certainly are worth pursuing, that cannabis may have potent properties to both prevent and treat COVID. We're not there. We can't say we have a cure yet, but certainly we should be moving forward with it. The other thing that I think has become clear in the course of this conversation is that uh, stigma is so powerful. It affected me and the way I approached this conversation. It affected Dr. Rosado and the way he approached this conversation. And I'm sure that has influenced uh, you know, many of the conversations that our audience has had on this topic. And so um, I would like to invite um, the cannabis community globally to start having this conversation. I think there's plenty of science to justify it. I don't think that we're going to risk all of the progress that we made. And there's one question that's really burning on my mind after this conversation. How many people do you know that use cannabis on a regular basis who have suffered COVID? And if they have, how extreme has that been? Uh, you can send me the answer to those questions uh, to Steve at stevedangelo.com. And uh, we will say goodbye to our guests now. Uh, you Again, you can find all of their information, their links and their bios. Uh, I encourage you to, to use those links and bios. You may never have a better opportunity to get to know one of the leading cannabis medical professionals now before the rest of the world realizes how important this medicine is and what heroes they are. Thank you all so much for being with us today. <laughs>